Before I get started, I'd just like to make one last announcement that um, Jeff missed. We have a, a card for Tim Tyndall, and it's just something that uh, we put together, and we'd like everybody to sign. So please uh, make a note of that, that after the service out back, as we're having fellowship, um, make sure that you sign that. We'd like to fill that card up for Tim just to be a, an encouragement to him. Okay? Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 53. And it's interesting as we were getting ready, as we were doing, as Kevin was leading us, as Noah was, was uh, beginning, I thought that I should have preached out of Psalm 62. It's interesting that I thought I would actually quote the song we just sang later, but I didn't. I chose Psalm 53, and, and Psalm 53 is a, a different psalm. I mean, we all have our favorite psalms, don't we? We have those ones that really stand out to us. We have Psalm 23, we have you know, Psalm 1, we have Psalm 51, the, these psalms that really maybe at some time or another God has spoken to us. And, and after I selected Psalm 53, I began to think, you know, how, how am I going to preach this, and what am I going to say, and how is, how is this psalm going to encourage us as a church? And I have to admit that it was a little bit of a struggle, and I, I talked to, to my wife and some friends about it, and, and, and I was thinking, you know, God, why, why did you have me pick this psalm? And, and my wife said to me this morning, God sovereignly chose you <laughs> to preach Psalm 53. And so, in way of, of introduction, in way of introduction, I want to make some points that, that will help us to understand uh, the importance of Psalm 53 and, and, and what it has to say to us. It's a psalm that, you know, when we think of psalms, we think of the, the, psalm, the songbook of, of the nation of Israel or the early church, and that they would sing the, these, these psalms. And you have to think, I, I couldn't help but think, how could they have sung this? But if you look at Psalm 53, I, I want to make a couple of, of, of points. One is that Psalm 53 is, is almost identical to Psalm 14. It's almost identical to Psalm 14. And, and when you look at these two psalms next to each other, there, there are some, some minor variations, and I want to just point those out. I mean, in verse 1, Psalm 53 says, "...they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity." Where in Psalm 14, it says they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. We see in, in verses 2 and 4 and 5 and 6 in Psalm 53, uh, this, David uses the word God, or what we know as Elohim in the Hebrew. But in Psalm 14, we see in those similar verses the, uh, the name of God, the Yahweh, or the, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And so there's this minor variation. In, in verse 4 of Psalm 53, you see, it says, Have those who work evil no knowledge? But in Psalm 14, it says, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers? So again, these are just minor things. But, but the thing that I, I think I was most helped by as I was looking at this, is the title that you see at the, at the top of Psalm 53, because it differs from Psalm 14. Psalm 14 says, to the choir master of David. But in Psalm 50, 
Psalm 53 says, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. And you think, well, how could that be significant? But when, when you look at this word Mahalath, you know, it could mean a, a, a type of instrument or a type of uh, music that should be played with the psalm. And so there could have been a variation, and, and David could have just changed this psalm, Psalm 53, from Psalm 14 as he wrote both of them. And he could have just uh, changed the way that it was played. But the other word that is used there is the word mascal. And the word mascal is a means a, a song, a psalm of instruction, a psalm of instruction. So as we go through Psalm 53, we have to think through that, that this is something that God is, is trying to instruct us with. You know, a, a mascal is a song of instruction, the psalm that, that teaches you something. And this idea is found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul says this, he says, "'Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly.'" teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So it's, it's something that is teaching us. And, and I think what the psalmist or what David is trying to do is he's trying to, see, to tell us what is the reason and the remedy for the way things are. He's, he's trying to teach us the reason and the remedy for the way things are. And I, I want to begin this morning by reminding us, as even Kevin reminded us, that, that we are in, a, in difficult times, aren't we? Persecution, hatred for Christians is, is on the rise. When we look at this world, we see ourselves that we are definitely in a, in a difficult time and we see these new manifestations of a man's evil day in and day out. As, as we watch TV or as we, we go on the internet, we see these things and we see the hatred in, in, in the volatileness of people in this world. We see people not wanting to simply have a dialogue any longer, but they want to scream and they want to yell. How do we handle this? And we see that the evil... Evil is being called, being called good, and good is being called evil. And we would ask ourselves, why, why are these things happening? Why, why do people do evil things? Why do men commit evil and treacherous acts against other men? We know that murder is on the rise. There, there are wars. There are rumors of wars. And that's been the case since the very beginning. That's not something new. And when we look at the world and... The world tries to give reasons or, and, and answers to, to, to this problem that we have. And I, I think that they are weak responses. There's, you know, a, a lack of economic freedom. There's a lack of opportunity. There's a, a lack of success. There's a, a lack of fulfilling relationships. There's a lack of education. There's the wrong type of nurturing, the wrong race, the wrong upbringing, all these reasons the world wants to give to why things are wrong. But we know better because we know what the Word of God tells us the issue is. But we can do the same thing. What, we can, and I find myself doing this. I look at things and I say, what in the world? How could this be? People are going insane. I have that same response. What is wrong with people? And brothers and sisters, 
Sisters, God hasn't left us to figure this out on our own, has he? No, he's told us. He's told us in his word. And I think we know the, the answer, but our, our minds need to be constantly reminded to the truth that we have in the scriptures. And, and God's word provides us with a worldview that includes wickedness. We have a worldview that includes wickedness. And I believe Psalm 53 is helpful because it teaches us about how we are to think and feel about the wickedness around us. The wickedness that surrounds us and the wickedness that, that we are facing. And it helps us, it helps the people of God to not be tossed, to not be shaken. That we can stand and we can stand firm knowing that, that God is, that this world is not out of his control helps us, like, like the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, that says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it helps us to keep our hearts and our minds and our emotions stayed where they need to be, keeping us uh, firm in our faith. And I trust and I hope that we will see and understand that from Psalm 53. So let's go ahead and look at, at Psalm 53. Let's read. This is the Word of God. Psalm 53, verses 1 through 6. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a mascal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are, in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You, you put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this, this morning to study Psalm 53, Lord, I pray that you would instruct us. Lord, that our hearts would be more and more molded to the image of Christ, that we would have more and more of the mind of Christ, that we would look at, at this world in a, in a way that uh, we can trust you and fully understand your goodness in the midst of a, a world that desperately needs you. Father, I pray that as we study this word that we would be encouraged not to lose hope, but that we would, we would seek you, that we would pray to you, that we would long for you, and that we would long for your coming. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever studied the, what we call the, the doctrines of grace, anybody studied the doctrines of grace? The first doctrine of grace, if you use the acronym TULIP, is total depravity. Total depravity. 
And if you've heard that term, total depravity, these two words describe the condition of every single person in the entire human race that have not been touched by the grace of God. Each one of us, if we have not been touched by the grace of God, find ourselves totally depraved. Now, in Christ, we know that we are new creations. Old things have passed away. New things have come. And when, he's, when we talk about total depravity, we're not just saying that, that people are just tainted or, or, or just a little bit messed up. Uh, they're not just a, a sinner, but every part and every aspect of their being, personality, mind, imagination, affections, will, every part of the unregenerate person inside and out is corrupted and, and influenced and, and depraved. And we see that in our, in our first point. When, when we look at this for, first point, the defiance of a fool, we, say, we see in verse 1 that it says, the fool says what? Says in his heart, there is no God. So what is a fool? He's not just some silly person, you know, that you see somebody acting foolish. You see some child acting foolish. I, I know when we were raising our kids, we would, we would say that what? Foolishness is what? Bound up in the heart of a child. And the rod of reproof will drive it far from them. But that is not, that is what, not what the psalmist is, is talking about here. The word fool is derived from the Hebrew word that means fade or, or, or wither, it's, it's like the falling of a, an autumn leaf. It's indicating the idea of moral decay, degeneracy, spiritual death, worthlessness. That is what a fool is. And a fool in God's sight is somebody who is in the midst of, as, as I said, moral decay and degeneration. He is, he is spiritually dead. And before God, he is worthless in, in that he cannot and will not do anything to please God. That's that's the fool. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 tells us something about the fool. It says, the fear of the Lord is what the, the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They don't want God. They don't want God telling them what they are to do. They don't want God to, to be dictating in their lives. They want to be their own God. Because they don't fear God, they don't admire Him, they don't submit to Him, and as a result, they hate and they despise any kind of correction, any kind of instruction on how they should live that doesn't originate with themselves. When I was a new believer, I can remember reading maybe Psalm 14 or, or Psalm 53 and, and seeing these, this word that a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and, and I had the tendency at that time as a new believer to think that this is uh, the, the intellectual atheist, the person who sits and ponders the, the, the things and says, look, I, I have studied, I've, I've looked into this, and for me, I believe that there is no God. People like Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, or, or Christopher Hitchens, who wrote God is Not Great, these great what we call intellectuals who, who are, are, think they're so wise and they're, they're so smart uh, to believe in God. They think that they've all figured it out. They are fools. They are fools. But, but that is not what David is addressing here. He's not addressing this intellectual 
atheism that, that we often think of when we think of uh, this passage. Because in the ancient Near East, intellectual atheism was unknown. And we see that throughout the Old Testament because there, there were many gods. The issue wasn't atheism. The issue was rejecting God for who He was and going after false gods. The type of atheism that, that David is highlighting here that marks the fool and that marks all of those who are apart from God is what we call practical atheism. It's they're, they're living their lives as if God doesn't exist. They don't want God to exist because they want to live their lives the way they want to. And sadly, brothers and sisters, and I, I want to speak to us right now in this, that, that sometimes, Christians, we live as practical atheists. We live as God doesn't exist. We act as if God doesn't exist. But we know better. We need to turn our hearts to understand that we don't want to be the fool. No, this practical atheism, it's, a, it's an atheism that looks at God and, and shakes a, a defiant fist. And it's not so much the, the hand that's contemplating on, on the chin of God's existence. No, it's a denial that, that God exists, and it's a suppression of the truth about God for a lie. That's what Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1. Listen, what Paul says in, in verses 18 through 23, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous, unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. They know God exists. They know God exists. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, that's the fool. The fool suppresses the, the truth in, in unrighteousness and in the, in the pursuit of their own independence from God because they don't want to be accountable to Him. And the idea is that, you know, God will, will just simply get in my way. God will put a damper. And, and we, we will preach the gospel to people sometimes, and that's what they'll say, right? No, I want to live my life the way I want to live it. I remember witnessing to a, a friend of mine when I, when I became a Christian, and, and that's exactly what he said. I believe you, but I don't want to follow God. If I follow God, I'm going to have to give up this, 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 and this. See, that's practical atheism. That's, I want to do what I want to do without God telling me what to do. You know, in verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there, there is no God. But notice what he says next. They are, they are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. And, and the idea of the overflow of the heart, which suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, is corruption. 
It's not just by what they do, it's because of who they are. They are fallen humanity. You know, there's a corruption, a waywardness that, that apart from God, they have no ability to, to do good, and the stain of their rebellion heart marks everything. You know, it marks their life, and they are characterized by this corruptness. There is an inability to, to, to be righteous, and David drives this home by the point when he says, there is no one, there is no one who does good. And at first glance, we might think, well, wait, don't we see non-Christians doing good things? I mean, I go to work every day, I, I work with non-Christians, and I see them I see them doing good things. I see them reaching out. I see them helping. I see them... So, so what, what is my... They, there's no one who does good. But I, I think the, the language that David uses points to the fact that they can ultimately not do anything that is, that is ultimately good, that, that is for the purpose of glorifying God. They're, everything that they do is, is tainted by, by sin and rebellion, But we, we want to be careful, and you know, we're not saying that every, everything that we observe men continually, that, that they're all, not always, they're not always doing bad things. That's not the point. The point is that they are not as bad as they, they could be, but they are thoroughly wicked. They are thoroughly corrupt, and the very best things that are done by corrupt, self-seeking fools and the Psalms are tainted by their wickedness. There is no one. There is no one who does good. And that's David's assessment. That's not my assessment. That's David's assessment. But, but lest we think that that's, it's only David's assessment. You know, the Psalm goes on. It moves next to the assessment of God on this mankind. This brings us to our second point, that the denunciation of the fool. And our, our first subpoint is the extent of, of the fool's wickedness in, in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. He says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. God looks down from heaven. And when I was studying, I, I, I got this picture of, of flying back to Los Angeles. Anybody ever flown back into L.A.? Anybody flown in at night? You know, I, I, I love to fly into L.A. at night. You know, you, you, you start descending, and, and you're coming in, and you fly over San Bernardino, and you start to see more and more and more lights. And, and you fly in, and you, you, you get into L.A., and you're starting to get lower, and you see all these little cars, right? There's little tiny <laughs> cars, and you see their lights traveling down the freeways, and, and they're going different directions, and you can see where the traffic is. And you look down, and you think, in every one of those little cars, there's little tiny people, <laughs> little tiny people down there, and you get this picture that God, God looks down from heaven. God looks down from heaven, and what does He see? Little, little tiny puny people, people who are, who are weak, who are frail. And David is, is using what we call anthropomorphic language. It's language that, that we can 
under, understand that, that the Lord is seated in the heavens above, gazing down upon mankind. And what David is showing us, that, that there's this huge distance between us and God. There's a huge distance be, between us and God, and he uses this term, children of man, to emphasize human frailty and weakness. God is looking down, and he's making this assessment, and, and, we, and we see this, and look what he's looking for. It says, to see if there are any who, who understand, to see if there are any who, who seek after God. And, and I think what David is doing here is he's contrasting the fool, what the fool does. The fool doesn't seek after God. The fool doesn't understand. And so I think when you, when you look at the Psalms in, in general, you, even going back to Psalm 1, there's this contrast, contrast between the wicked and, and the righteous. And, and I think he's doing that here. He's, he's contrasting. God is looking for, for the morally upright, for those who are following him, for those who love him. And David is contrasting these uh, who God is looking for with the fool in verse 1. And, and we see this this language of, of God seeking a number of times in, script, in, in the Scriptures. In, in Genesis chapter 6, at the time of Noah, we see that, that it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw. There was observation in the, with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. When men are rebelling against God, and it says in, in, in verse 5 of chapter 11, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Again, that's anthropomorphic language to say that God needed, did God need to come down? No. Does God know everything? Of course. Or in Genesis chapter 18 with, with Sodom, it says, I will go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. It's not as if God needed somebody to come and tell him that this was going on. God knew, and, but he uses this language to make an illustration, to make it vivid for us. God is going uh, down to see who he, he may find. And it's interesting to note that in every one of those passages I, I just m mentioned, in Genesis 6, Genesis 11, Genesis 18... All of those people that, that God comes down upon, that God looks at, find themselves wanting. They are not expecting the judgment of God. That's true uh, in the flood. That is true in Babel, and that is true in, in Sodom. None of them are thinking that, that, that God is going to show up any moment and judge me. And sadly, that's what we see in the world today, isn't it? Nobody thinks they're going to be judged. No, and, and he's setting up this indictment that he's going to come in verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, they have all fallen away. See, David had an indictment, but now God has his indictment. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. And, you know, I think this is, what he's saying is this is a universal Corruption. God says they have all fallen away. And David asserted it and now, and, and then the Lord confirms it. And I think what, what David is saying is, is that people, no matter who they are, that are fallen people, 
their wicked hearts pull them away from God. They don't want to have anything to do with God. They, they, they want to head away from God as, as far as they can be. In addition to falling away, it says together, collectively, mankind is corrupt. And the word corrupt was used to, to describe milk that spoils. Anybody like to drink spoiled milk? <laughs> no. Do you think you can fix that spoiled milk? <laughs> no. No, there's, there's a corruption no, there's a corruption. It's a, it's a spiritual corruption. This, this is the undisputed assessment of God on the way mankind is. And we might ask, is it, is it really that bad that, that all mankind is corrupt? And just to drive the, the nail in the coffin, the Lord's assessment concludes with a clear and devastating indictment. He says this, there is none who does good. And, and to add to that force, he says, not even one. Not even one. If, if God could leave some room, possibly there's some other way. Possibly there's some who are seeking after God. Possibly there's some that are good out there without Christ. Now, now we understand that God has his people, and, and we have been called out of darkness into light, and we praise God for that. But it wasn't that, that we were seeking after him. Remember, Jesus says, nobody comes to me, me unless the Father draws me. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, which we studied a few months ago, it says this, we, we were dead in the trespasses and sins. And he goes on, he says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of man, ma mankind. Like the rest of mankind. The same idea there, that everybody is corrupt, and uh, the Lord's assessment is that there is not one who does good. And, and one commentary Said, said this regarding the depravity of man. He says that it is universal in its breadth and total in its depth. Everybody, all men and women are thoroughly corrupt. No part of their heart goes unstained by corruption. And that is true of, uh, that is a truth that the Apostle Paul states in, in Romans chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. And Paul uses uh, this psalm as an argument that demonstrates the total depravity of mankind. Paul says this in Romans 3, verse 9. He says, For we have, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, that's Paul's assessment. And so, you know, my question here is, and I just want to pause here for a second to consider this assertion by, by David. Does this view of, of mankind fit with your worldview? Do you truly believe that mankind is, is total, totally depraved, that they're unable to, to seek after God, they're, they're unable to save themselves? Because that's God's assessment. And when we understand that, that this, should, this should humble us. This should humble us because it leaves us, it leaves us in a place that it, God must do something. God must do something to change our, our wicked hearts to, to bring us to Him. Understanding that this doctrine of, of sin, understanding that the Scripture describes man's lost 
condition should humble us because it helps us to understand that apart from the grace of God, this statement is true of us. And if you don't know Christ, that's, this is your condition. And it also, I think it also helps us clarify the problem that we see in this world when, when we understand and we look at the wickedness that's around us and we realize, why is it so bad? Why does it seem to be getting worse? Because this is the condition of sinful man. You know, there was a period as, as the Industrial Revolution was, was gaining ground that, that people thought, oh, this is kind of like the utopia. Things are getting better. And then comes World War I. What did they call World War I? The war to end all wars. What happened? World War II, right? Man is sinful. We need Christ. Well, and if the problem is sin, then the solution is, is Jesus. And we, you know, we have all these other world religions. They're, they're all about pointing to, to man's attempts to make himself right with God rather than Christianity where Jesus takes on human flesh and, and dies for the sins of his people. Jesus says, I came to, to save the lost. A man is sinful and utterly lost and, and needs Jesus Christ. And, 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 and I don't want us to have a fatalistic view. To, you know, we don't want to have that. Wow, I look at the world. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. Whatever will be, will be. This is just the way it is. That's not the point. The point is that we would understand and that we would, we would call out to God and we would say, God, deliver us. Come, Lord Jesus. And the Bible says that, that they're blessed are the man who joyfully waits for his coming. Are we longing? Are we longing for his coming? So that's the extent of our, the fool's wickedness. But second, secondly, our second some point, that we see the futility of the fool's wickedness. Look at the beginning of verse 4. He says, have those who work evil no knowledge? Have those who work evil no knowledge? And it's a rhetorical question. And I think we could, we could ask it this way. Do men and women who are running hard after God, who are, who are after evil, not understand the futility of their path that they're on? Or we might say, they, do they know what is going to happen? The truth is they don't. And the second two phrases identify those who work evil. It's those who attack the, the people of God. It says, those who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. This is a picture of, of David's time of the wicked attacking the righteous. And, and they, do it, they do it just part of their daily lives. They do it as they eat bread daily. And we're seeing more and more of that, right? There's no... There, there's no thought in the, in, the, in the wicked's heart that I shouldn't be attacking God's people. And David further describes these people as those who did not call upon God. And it's not saying that they don't, they don't pray. It's that, it's that they, they don't have an interest, in, uh, again, in God, they, that they are fools who, who don't seek after him. And, and David is painting a picture because in verse 5, he, it begins to, he begins to look 
away at the current, cir- the current circumstances to the future day of judgment. Look at verse 5. He says, there they are. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the wicked, those who are oppressing God's people. There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Now, David looks forward to, to the day when those who are opposing God, who are attacking God's people, will stand in terror as God is revealed and as, and as his wrath is poured out on the day of judgment. Verse 4 shows, again, that they don't expect it. They, it says, there they are in great terror where there is no terror. They're, they're thinking, just like the people of Sodom, they're thinking, all is good. All is good. Nothing, nothing is, bad is going to happen to me. You know, I remember back in 1994 the, when the Northridge earthquake hit. Our family was living in Long Beach. We were on the second floor of our, our triplex and, you know, up there in the middle of the night and that, that earthquake hit. It was, it was a strong earthquake. And we, it was shaking so hard. And, and at that time, we just had our two oldest and, and you know, began to run down the hallways and, and, and check on them, see if everything was okay. And, and then after everything calmed down, I got a call that, from my boss saying, I, you know, I want you to go to work and, and, and check on some things at work. I worked in a high-rise building in, in El Segundo. Imagine how shaking that high-rise building was. And In fact, there were some aftershocks that morning when I got there. But after the earthquake, my boss asked me to go there. And, and so what did I do? Put my clothes on? get in my car, take PCH to the 710, 710 to the 405, over the overpass, 405 all the way to El Segundo, get off the freeway, go to work. I get home that evening after we had, you know, checked everything, made sure everything was okay, and I see on the news where people just like me did the same exact thing as me. They got up, they were going to work, driving down the freeway, going over the overpass, only to find that the overpass wasn't there anymore. Plunging, plunging to their death. They had no understanding. They were, they were doing something that they did every day. Plunging to, the, to their death. No, they, they weren't expecting it. That wasn't something that was on the forefront of their minds. And we must understand that apart from God, we, we stand as those. What separated me from the other person that went off the edge? The sheer grace of God. Him calling me to go on a different freeway than them. Now, we must understand that apart from God, we stand in the same place as them, and we deserve, we deserve the same judgment that they deserve apart from Christ. And, and, and we are to hold this, this in our hands, these, these two things. We need to hold in one hand the, the compassion and the mercy for the lost. We need to have a compassion and a mercy for the lost because we were as they are. But secondly, I think we need to hold this tension that, that we understand that God is going to judge the wicked. And so... This is where, when we look at 
things. When we look at this world, God is not mocked. When we look at YouTube, when we look at things and we look at the hatred that is growing against us, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, they, that's what he'll reap. And so we hold on to that. And, but, but we also have that compassion and, and that mercy because we don't want to be hateful towards them. No, we want to be loving. We want to see them come to their senses. So we preach the gospel. And that brings us to our last point, the, the deliverance of the Lord. And we, we see David turns turns after say, stating this, this condition of sinful man, and he, and he turns, and, he, and he, he, he turns to the Lord in prayer uh, for deliverance for his people. He says in verse 6, oh, that, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. <clears throat> and we said earlier that understanding sin is important because it helps us understand the, the world around us, but, but we also need to have a, a future hope, right? We don't just look at the world and go, man, it's really bad, and that's all. No, we hope in God. We, we understand that as, as, we, as we sang, we, we shall not be shaken. We shall not be shaken because we have God as our hope. You know, and this psalm is asserting man's bleak condition, the oppression of God's people, the coming wrath for those who reject God. But David now turns to the future, and he, he expresses his hope in the deliverance of God. And, and I want us to get excited about this, right? Because we could easily just say, you know, man is depraved, God will deliver. But no, we should, no, God is going to be our deliverer. Praise the Lord that God is our deliverer. Praise the Lord that God is coming, especially as we look at this world. Man is, is lost and, and wickedness is great and they are going to be judged. And, he, and David turns his attention and his desire to, to deliverance. Someday when we'll no longer be in this, this crazy world, and I think it was Kevin that said, where is our hope? Where is our hope? Because I, th I think so, all too often, Christians, we... We put our hope in, in the things of this world. We put our hope in the Supreme Court's decisions. We put our, our hope in the amendments of the Constitution. We should, I think we should do all that we can. I think we should do all that we can. We should vote. We should speak out. We should speak out against injustice. We, could speak, we should speak out against things that are contrary to God. We should speak out against abortion. I think we should do all that we can. I think we should, we should vote for people who are going to put righteous laws in, but those things are not our hope. Because truth, truthfully, the way things are going, things are getting worse. And if these things are our hope and they don't succeed, where are we going to be? No, we need to hope in God. Verse 6 again, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. Zion, the holy mountain of Jerusalem. When God restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. That's what we long for. We, we long for His kingdom coming to earth. Romans chapter 11 speaks of 
the reuniting of the people of God, uh, Israel and the church. And, and Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to, to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That is our hope. That is our hope. And what a day that will be when, when, when God's chosen people, will, Jews and, and, and Gentiles, will be fully united in, in his kingdom. And we know that it's certain because, he, because it says when the Lord restores, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. And it's going to happen, and it's going to be with great joy. And, and we look forward to this in, in faith, and, and we remember that, that we can look back at, at the first coming of Christ and find great joy in that, when He took away our sins. And we have this benefit of looking back, and David was looking forward, and, and we receive the, the truth that God is our deliverer and that He delivered us through Jesus Christ, ultimate deliverance ultimate rescue, ultimate removal from a wicked world, this world that's marred by sin, marred by depravity, to a rejoicing eternity with our Savior. And when we look at things today, as I began with, when we look at our situation, when we look at the wickedness that, that we're faced with in this world and everything around us, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is, this is man's depravity. It's just, it's just becoming more and more clear. This is man's depravity. But God is our, our fortress, isn't he? He's our redeemer. And we have a remedy that is a hope for a, a world that desperately needs him. And let us be reminded that, that we are strangers and aliens in this place. That we have a purpose. We are ambassadors of God. God making his appeal through us to a world that needs us and needs him. Let me finish with this. There are the words from the song we're going to sing again. I'll, be, I'll not be shaken. For God alone, I wait in silence. My soul is still, is still before the Lord. He is my rock and my salvation. My fortress strong, I trust in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for Psalm 53. Lord, because in it, we see the reason and the remedy for a world that hates you and is growing to hate us. Lord, let us be people that love you more and more every day. And let us be people who are gospel-centered, that those who are lost might be found as we have been found. In Jesus' name, amen.